Hello and welcome. My name is Juanita Headley. I am a New York attorney and the founder and CEO of Changing Cases. You are listening to a set of podcasts, a series dealing with the issues of human trafficking, child abuse, and of course, can you keep a secret? Knowing how to respond to the question. Over the following weeks and months, I will be tackling some hard-hitting topics with a view to educate, empower, and inspire you to change the way you think, act, and respond to better safeguard the children in your world. Stay tuned until the end of this show, where I'll be sharing with you not only how you can get a copy of my new book, but I'll also inform you of some upcoming free trainings and how you can contact me to have your questions featured in a future episode of this show. Let's talk about disclosures of abuse. For those of you who missed part one to this podcast series, I shared the importance of responding yes to the question, can you keep a secret? And of course, I appreciate that there are some people who may feel uncomfortable using the word yes. They may feel that they're being deceptive, that they're not being completely honest or transparent with the person who asked the question, can you keep a secret? However, what I want to point out once again is when a person does ask the question, can you keep a secret? They are trying to tell you something. It's a cry for help. They want to open up and share something that may be very uncomfortable, embarrassing, and quite frankly, difficult to communicate to another person. Bearing this in mind, I believe it is really important to know how to respond to the question, can you keep a secret? Not just with your words, but also with your reaction. As someone recently used the term vibes, it's about giving off the right body language. Because when it comes to children specifically, although your mouth may say one thing, your body language is saying something completely different. Now, when a child discloses that they've been sexually abused, the first thing you need to do is to believe them. No matter how shocking that revelation is, no matter the disbelief you may feel, particularly if you know the accused, if you know the perpetrator, it is really important to allow that child the freedom to speak without feeling judged, without feeling that you have any doubt or disbelief towards what they have shared. Understand that disclosing abuse is not an easy thing to do. And that child has shown a lot of courage by opening up and sharing with you. And the best way for you to respond is by giving off signs to that child through your body language and with your affirmative words, that you do believe them. What's really useful too is if you've had conversations with your child about sexual abuse and a lot of parents have had those conversations and sometimes the wrong language is used. In other words, rather than saying private parts or genitals, the terms cookie, pumpkin or butterfly are used. But aside from that, What's really important when a parent does communicate to that child 
is that they make that child understand that if anybody does anything to them that is sexually inappropriate, that that child needs to come and confide in their parents, needs to come and confide immediately what has happened. And I think that's really important because unfortunately, a lot of the advice children have is with regards to strangers. Stay away from strangers or stay away from male relatives. But as we know, female relatives can also perpetrate abuse as well. In some instances, the abuser may scare the child into silence and threaten that child by saying something like, if you disclose what is happening, you will be arrested or your parents will be arrested. Nobody will believe you. And that is one of the common things that are often said from a perpetrator to a victim. Nobody will believe you. And of course, quite often that child is told that they will go to jail or that their parents will be physically harmed or even murdered. Bearing this in mind, when a parent discusses with a child about staying safe from sexual abuse, that parent needs to incorporate this type of language into what they say. What I mean by that is they need to let the child know and allow that child to be reassured that no matter what may happen to you, no matter who may perpetrate abuse against you, that is not your fault. And even if you're told that you will be arrested or mommy and daddy will be arrested or that mommy and daddy will be murdered, understand that we will be safe and you need to tell us. Because I've heard of so many stories of children who have indeed been abused and said nothing because they were afraid that if they ever did, their parents would be murdered or incarcerated. And understanding that is the best way for a parent to safeguard their child by giving them the information in advance. As the Bible says, people perish for lack of knowledge. Knowledge is important. And once you have educated your child sufficiently, they will know how to respond, how to react if a situation happens, and they will feel confident and comfortable in coming to you with a revelation of having been abused. That is really, really important. And I believe it is something that sadly is not happening. But my prayer and desire is that from hearing this podcast, that language between parents and their children will change and that children will be given the information in the event that they are indeed a victim of abuse. That child knows that they can immediately come to their parents. And that is important. In such a situation where a child is abused, that child has gone through an experience, but that parent needs to have reassured them that as soon as that child is in a safe space with mommy or daddy, that child reveals that information. Because children do reveal information, not always with the words that they speak, but often through their body language, through the eye contact. And it is about being able to identify these certain behaviors so that you can ascertain if a situation of abuse is taking place. What's really important to understand and appreciate is that a perpetrator of abuse may sometimes, and that's an important word, may sometimes behave in such a way that nobody would ever have suspected them. 
I say sometimes because quite often a person who abuses, they give off certain indicators. There are certain things that they may say or do, even just the eye contact that they may sustain with a victim, even just the way that they may carry themselves can give an indicator. And I say that because there are individuals who people would immediately point a finger and say, I believe he is a pedophile. And sadly, it's usually a guy, for example, in the UK, wearing a raincoat with greasy hair, glasses, probably a plastic bag, maybe a dog thrown in as well. But there is this identity that we have given a perpetrator. He loiters on the street, he doesn't have any friends, socially awkward. It's very easy for us to be able to identify somebody like that and point the finger and say he's an abuser. But there are others who are able to go under the radar because of the occupation they have, because of the status they have in the community, or maybe because they have a devout religious background. However, I believe that there are always small indicators and it's about being able to identify them. I say this because with women who've been in the sex industry, who've been exploited or being prostituted, quite often when they have been in this industry for a number of years and had a number of customers going into the hundreds or even thousands, they are able to identify things about men as soon as that man walks into the room. These women have a gift. Now, I wish I had that gift to be able to identify things about any male who walks into a room. I, of course, would not want to be in the sex industry, let alone exploited to develop the gift. But the point is, when you are around certain types of people, when you are observing certain types of behavior, you're able to process that information. It's stored in your memory box. And then you're able to look at people and see similarities and observe and view things that will trigger in your memory. Similarly, with perpetrators, those who do go undetected, it's because of the way they behave, the way that they dress, the way that they act. Because unfortunately, many of us perceive a pedophile to be dressed a certain way to be very strange, to not have a girlfriend. And in fact, I have read articles of individuals who were married, engaged, who went to very prestigious universities, had degrees and doctorates, but they were still perpetrators. And those are the ones that are a lot harder to, to, harder to detect because we do not know what we're looking for. Somebody once asked me the question, how do you identify a perpetrator? And in fact, I said, I really don't have an answer because the fact of the matter, it's usually the person that you least expect. And it is very difficult to be able to point a finger at somebody because there are some people who simply behave strange, wearing glasses, having greasy hair, wearing a raincoat and carrying a plastic bag does not mean to say that you're a perpetrator. That may just be the way that you carry and conduct yourself. So it is very difficult to say a perpetrator looks like this or dresses like this or acts like this. But there are certainly identifiers that can help us to be able to point a finger and say this behavior is susceptible. This behavior is suspicious.
in future episodes, as we will talk about pedophiles, traffickers, pimps, and identifying, I will be giving a list of signs and indicators that will help you to be able to ascertain if a person may indeed be exploiting another person for the purposes of sexual abuse or commercial sexual exploitation. In relation to disclosures of abuse, the next thing that's really important is staying calm. Now this is a given, but realistically speaking, when you have heard of a case of abuse, it will be incredibly difficult for you to remain calm. You may be shocked, angry, disbelief. You may go through a number of emotions. And if you too were a victim of abuse, historic or even currently, that can trigger a very emotional reaction or response in you. But realize you have an audience. That child who has disclosed to you, your reaction or response is going to make that child possibly internalize your reaction and believe that they have somehow upset you. Remember, children react and respond differently to adults. And so again, you have to think about the vibes that you are giving off. What signals are you sending to this child? Instead of responding with shock or anger, you need to reassure that child. That's how you need to respond. You need to let that child know that it is not their fault, that they are not to blame, they are not responsible, and let them know that they are not the first victim and they sadly will not be the last victim. And even share with them stories that will encourage them that their past does not have to dictate the future. Now, I remember saying this to somebody recently, and they said, well, I disagree with that statement because in your life as a victim of sexual abuse from the ages of four to 10 by your stepfather, your past has dictated your future. I believe they misunderstood what I was saying. When I make the statement that my past does not dictate my future, and the same with many other survivors, what I mean by that is contrary to popular belief. Although I was a victim of abuse, I have not and will never become an abuser. And although I was a victim of abuse, I am not promiscuous. Because quite often people have a false assumption, a false belief that abusers were abused in their past and that promiscuous people were abused. And I am neither of those things. Instead, what I have done is take my own personal story, turn that around to be a blessing to others. I believe, as it says in the Bible, what the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. And I believe very strongly that the Lord has a plan and a purpose for my life and the life of every person on this earth, whether they believe in him or not. I believe it's important for you to encourage that child. Let them know that this is not the end, that they are not discarded goods, because in certain cultures and communities, that's what is believed. During this time of disclosure, you really need to ensure that not just your body language, your words, even your eye contact is giving comfortable signs and giving believing signs, believing vibes, but you also need to consider the environment that you're in. That child needs to feel safe and it has to be a place where there's no opportunity for you to be overheard. You want it to be a private place, but not somewhere that is secluded, that may trigger the child and make them feel afraid. 
For myself, when I listen to disclosures of abuse, I ensure that it's a private place, but open. I want the child to feel safe. And of course, I want to prevent any possibility of false allegations being made against me. So I will ensure that wherever I am, it's in a well-lit, open environment, but that whoever may also be in that room or in earshot is so far away that they are unable to hear what is being said. It's also important to be transparent. Because when you hear a story, especially if you're closely involved, this is somebody that you care for, or maybe a family member, or a close friend, having that personal involvement with the victim or even with the perpetrator, you may feel strongly that you can change this situation. You can swoop in and be the superhero for this child. But realistically speaking, unless you're a judge or unless you're the jury, you really cannot make a decision or determination as to what will happen when this allegation is disclosed to the authorities. So do not ever promise what you cannot do. Because realistically speaking, the things that you may want to promise, you cannot do that because of the law, because of court proceedings, because of due process. And let's be realistic. There is a system in the world, innocent until proven guilty. If you promise the accused, the perpetrator will go to jail tonight, tomorrow, that is unrealistic. Even if you are convinced that there is sufficient evidence, do not promise what you cannot do and do not promise what you cannot guarantee. Even saying to the child that they can come and live with you, once again, you really cannot guarantee that. Because once, once the social services get involved, the decision and determination of where is safe for the child is in their hands. The other really important thing to do is to keep your opinions, particularly any strong negative opinions on the perpetrator to yourself. If you have positive things to say about the perpetrator, is that appropriate? That is for you to decide. But what I will emphasize is speaking negatively or ill of the accused will not help the victim. Because when a child has been a victim of abuse and also grooming, they may have very conflicting emotions and feelings towards the perpetrator. In my own experience with my stepfather, he was indeed my best friend. And because we were best friends, a lot of people found it hard to believe that he abused me. What they didn't realize is that I was groomed and it's as though I had two stepfathers, a day stepfather who would give me candy and special privileges and a night stepfather who would abuse me without words. That means there was no conversation, there was no discussion. He would simply abuse me in my sleep. Every story is different and you need to understand and appreciate that. And whatever feelings you have towards the perpetrator, keep those to yourself do not disclose them to that child because it will not help in the situation. You need to be a safe, communicate to them your next steps. I'm going to call the police. Once you have called the authorities and they have explained to you their next steps, 
then you need to come back to that child and inform them of the new information that you have. But what is really important here is before you report to the authorities, let that child know exactly what you're going to do. Because sometimes when the authorities are involved, a child may retract their statement. They may deny that they ever told you that and deny the abuse. The element of surprise is not effective in such a situation. And on the back of that, it will create trust issues. Communicate to the child. Let them know your next steps. Your next steps need to be alerting and informing the authorities immediately. And then coming back to the child and letting them know what is going to happen next. Now you need to take a step back. You need to allow the investigators to investigate. Questioning needs to cease. And as you have heard that child's disclosure, you need to have allowed them to speak freely. Do not question them unless seeking clarification. Because if you question a child, it can cause issues later on when their evidence is given at court, as though you have led the witness. All you need to do is listen and clarify so you understand whether abuse has indeed happened, but do not investigate. And ensure the information you've heard, it stays there. Allow the police to communicate to the authorities, the social worker, and the other agencies that will be involved. Do not, under any circumstances, inform the perpetrator of what you've heard. Even if that is your husband, or your wife, or your father, or grandfather, or uncle, or aunt. Because remember, women do it too. You need to keep this information to yourself. Remember, the question was, can you keep a secret? However they asked you that before disclosing, you can keep a secret. And this is how the question applies. The question applies in relation to who you share that secret with. Because the police need to know, but the perpetrator does not. So that question, can you keep a secret? Yes, you can, because you are not going to inform the authorities. You're not going to make it a topic of discussion. You're not going to share it with anybody apart from those who need to know. And that's those who are in a position and power to protect that child. And of course, we cannot forget that you too will need support. After hearing a disclosure of abuse, and maybe even getting sordid details that you really would rather have not known about, you too may need support. So understand that support does exist and support is available, and there is nothing wrong with seeking support after receiving such information. But what's important is when you get that support, you do it in a way that is safe and protects the confidentiality and protects the identity of this victim. You've done the right thing and take heed and courage in the fact that you have done the right thing. And I say that because realistically speaking, that child may be very angry with you. That child may retract that statement. That child may deny the allegations. When the information does come out and if the perpetrator then uncovers that you were the one who went to the authorities, there may be a pushback. But despite all that, take courage that you have done the right thing 
And also, if again you're presented with a situation, take courage that you need to again do the right thing. This cannot be about you. There is a victim in front of you who needs protecting. And that responsibility has been placed on you. Now that child may be angry at you right now. And that is completely reasonable in the circumstances. Because realistically speaking, the child has fear. Fear is false evidence appearing real. The unknown creates fear in the best of us. And even more so in a child who has no idea what will happen to them or the perpetrator. Understanding that that child has fear, appreciating that that child may react in a way that may upset you or even hurt you emotionally. Realize that right now they may be angry, but I am convinced in many years when they have a healthy, whole and productive life, they will come back and thank you for protecting them. And in this situation, for being their savior. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Keep a Secret? I trust that the information has been useful to you. I believe that we all need knowledge, we all need education, and when we have new knowledge and we have new education, we can make better, productive, and even life-changing decisions To get a deeper concept and understanding of the topic I discussed today and last week, then please do reach out to me for a copy of my new book, Can You Keep a Secret? Or you can follow me, message, share your story with me, ask your question, so that way I can share in the following episodes some of these other topics that are bothering not just you, but other people around the world. We can all learn from one another, and this is an educational series that I'm hoping will impact and change not just your life, but the lives of people around you. You can find all my contact detail on my website, changingcases.org, that's changing, C-A-S-E-S, changingcases.org. Remember to share this podcast with friends, with family members. There are victims and survivors in your world. You just don't know it. But if we can all be educated, then the world will be a safer place. Please tune in next week for another episode. Keep a secret. I want to trust you. I want to trust you. So can you keep?